0: Oh, hopefully you heard that, if, if not, those at home, you didn't hear that. All right, it's on now, there we go. All right, so I say that to say that, that there is this contrast that is made between a dark blue t-shirt and white cat hair, as, as you can see, and uh, as, as I said, there's probably just as much on what I'm wearing today, but it doesn't contrast as much because it blends in with the white. And the illustration I'm trying to make this morning is that God's grace is undeniably glorious. It's too wonderful to fully describe, but far too often we fail to appreciate God's grace because we fail to see it against the dark backdrop of our sin and guilt. And the truth is we will never see God's grace as fully as we could and as fully as we should until we first realize how truly dark and how awful our sinfulness and brokenness are apart from Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul is going to do for us this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. He is going to paint this dark backdrop of sin and death so that the glorious grace of of God will come shining through by contrast. And on that pitch black canvas of sin and death, He is going to paint the gracious actions of God. How he raises us from death to life. And how he raises us to new life in Jesus Christ. Which transforms us into a new creation with new works. A new identity, a new future, and a new hope. And my prayer this morning is as we do dive into this text. That we will once again be pressed into God's grace by being reminded and confronted how dark and awful our sin is and how great and glorious the grace of God is. That is my prayer this morning. The end goal is, is as always, greater worship and greater adoration of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's read the passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, we lived, we conducted ourselves in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for your wonderful grace. Father, I pray that we would see it as never before this morning. Father, I pray that we would see our sin and, the, and, and, our, and our darkness and our brokenness apart from you, and that we would be pressed into your grace this morning. Father, I'm sure without you I can do nothing. So, Father, I ask that my words would be your words, my thoughts would be your thoughts. Father, strengthen me according to your word this morning. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. And Father, give us the freedom to receive that and to obey that this morning. And Father, we'll be sure to give you the glory for everything that's accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea of the message this morning is that God graciously saves us from death to new life and new works through Jesus Christ. God graciously saves us from death to new life and new works through Jesus Christ. Let's look at our first point And that's this, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead under the power of of Satan and our sinful desires. This is verses 1 through 3. Look back again at the text. It says, and you who were, were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So Paul is opening this section of Scripture by reminding the Ephesian believers, these are are those who have have already believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, he's reminding them of their former identity, who they were apart from Christ. This is what was true of them and would have remained true of them had not God intervened. In, the, in their lives. And so as you hear the descriptors this morning in this section, and, and, and you hear them kind of couched in the past tense, if you're here this morning and, and you're not in Christ, these are very much still true for you today. This is your current identity apart from Christ. And what is that identity? What was true of the Ephesians? Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He, he paints as dark a picture as, as you possibly can. He declares that they were spiritually dead. And he spends these first three verses describing what that actually means. What does that mean in detail? And what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Because certainly, th- th- these people, they could walk, they could talk, they could reason, they could think. They could make certain choices. They could do a number of things. But to be spiritually dead is to be separated and alienated from God. And God is the source of life. So it is to be separated and alienated from the source of all life. And to not have any means within yourself to bring life about. You are dead spiritually. You can walk and you can talk, but you, you you cannot interact with God. You are separated and alienated from him, spiritually dead. And so Paul further qualifies this, and we see that here in the text. He does so by describing this death as being in trespasses and sins. We see that there there in, uh, in, in the end of verse 1. He, he tells the Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And so wh- what does that mean? What, what Paul is saying is, that we are not simply mistake-prone, we don't simply uh, accidentally do things that are wrong. He is telling us that apart from Christ, we consciously and deliberately act against the holiness of God. By our own nature and by our own will, we act against God. We have violated God's law repeatedly. And apart from Christ, we, we live in that, in that world, in that, that sphere, in that, in that realm. We operate in a world of our own sinfulness. And you see that word in verse 2, that word walked there. Uh, Paul uses this, this word all throughout the letter, and he uses it here. It, it refers to the way we, we operate, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we live our lives. How did they walk? In their own trespasses and sins. And Paul is going to qualify that for for us with two uh, descriptions. What does that mean to walk in your trespasses and sins? And the first way it means is, as you see there in the text, it's according to the course of this world or following the course of this world. The course of this world is the natural flow of humanity in the age of the fall. Humanity is by its very nature rebellious, willfully sinful against God refusing to acknowledge him by its very nature. By our very nature, we are bent away from God. We are are bent towards our own destruction. This is the spirit of the age that we live in. So contrary to what society and culture would tell you, we as humanity, we are not evolving into a higher plane of existence. Instead, it's the exact opposite. Under the fall, we are degenerating as humanity. And we see that as we, we, we continuously unshackle ourselves from the common graces that God has given us to restrain some of that sinfulness. Things like objective truth. Things like the objective standards of morality. What is right and wrong. The rule of law. We, we have rejected those things as humanity. Humanity. And because of that, we are hurtling toward our own impending destruction apart from Christ. But to be clear, fallen humanity from Adam on has always been this way. This is not something new. Fallen humanity has always been headed for destruction. But it does seem like in the age we live in now that we are intent on expediting the process. We are removing these these restraints that God put in place. And so I want you to think of it this way. Picture in your mind a river. It flows from a source, and it flows downstream and empties into the ocean. And I want you to picture this river as it travels downstream. The current starts to pick up and gets faster and faster and faster. And and the current becomes more intense until it becomes uncontrollably destructive. You have that picture in your mind of this river. Now I want you to picture in that river, this raging, uncontrollable river that's headed somewhere, that's headed for destruction. There's a mass of humanity. Everyone that has ever lived is in this river struggling to swim. Whether, whether they know it or not, whether you try to avoid it or not, everybody is headed downstream. Everybody is headed for certain destruction within this river. This is how Paul describes the Ephesians' former state. They were all following this course. They were helpless to save themselves. And furthermore, he's going to let us know that even if they could, they were unwilling to save themselves. That's the first way he describes this former walk. The second way is this. He, he calls it, you see there in, in verse 2, that it's according to, to the prince of the power of the air, who is the spirit presently at work and the sons of disobedience. So to make it matters worse, if it were not bad enough that all of humanity is in this river and they're all headed for destruction, there is an external enemy. There is a personal and malevolent actor at play here. And, 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 and this person is intent with seeing every person in the river drowned. Not just some, but all. And he is actively working to hasten the destruction of mankind. He's described here in the text as as the prince, the ruler over the authority of the air. He and his demonic spirits are presently involved in in all the chaos and, and, and turmoil of this world's age. And he hates humanity. He hates us because we bear the image of the creator regardless of how fallen we are. We still have that mark on us. And so he hates us for it. And he, he, is, he is hell-bent, if you will, on the destruction. He wants to see everyone drowned, spiritually speaking. This enemy, we know him as Satan. Not only does he rule over the powers of darkness, but here in the text it, it lets us know that he is also working in and ruling over the sons of disobedience, as, as they're called here. Uh, the children of disobedience, there in verse two. And and, and this is this stands in stark contrast to, to to the identity of a believer, because a believer has the spirit of God working in them. Uh, you know, in Philippians two thirteen, uh, it says that 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 God works in us both to will and to do His good work. Uh, Philippians one six says that God has begun a good work in us. So, for a believer. In Christ, he has God working in his life. But for those apart from Christ, the enemy is working in their life, in their heart. He he is controlling. He he he, he He is seeking their destruction actively. And these sons of disobedience, who are they? They're everyone. They're everyone in humanity who are apart from Christ. These are all who will live in open defiance of God. They're described also in verse 3 as the children of wrath. And that that phrase refers to the fact that apart from Christ, we are rightfully facing the justice and wrath of God. No bones about it. Because of our own disobedience. Ephesians 5, 6, Paul declares that the wrath of God comes upon these children of disobedience. And If we would use the words of the Apostle John, he would would say that that these people are condemned already, John 3.18. He would say that he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, John 3.36. And as if this state, this former identity wasn't bad enough, Paul is going to pick an even darker brush to paint on this canvas. A a darker paint. He's going to use an even broader brush. Because notice in verse 3, we have a a pronoun change, right? He was talking you plural in verses 1 and 2. But now in verse 3, it's we. So, this spiritual death problem was not unique to Gentile Ephesians. In fact, both Jew and Gentile alike suffer the same affliction. And that we, of verse 3, the you of of verses 1 and 2, it extends to everyone, including everyone in this room today. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we are all dead in trespasses and sins, without exception. These sons of disobedience that we've been talking about, they are not a lower class of sinner. They, they, They are not someone to look down upon. Or to feel better than. According to God's word here. We either are them or we were them. And Paul states that before Christ. This is how we all live. This is how we all conducted ourselves. We all walked among these sons of disobedience. And why? Why would we all walk among the sons of disobedience? You ever heard the old phrase. Birds of a feather flock together. We walked among them because we were them. We walk among them now because we are them. If we still do. We are the sons of disobedience. We follow lockstep with the rest of the world because we were the rest of the world or we are the rest of the world. We were all heading down the river to destruction under the rule of Satan. But notice, notice in the text here, Paul is not going to place all the blame on an external opposition here. He's not going to blame Satan so alone. This is no, the devil made me do it. Notice what he says in the text. There is a real Satan. He is a real enemy of the souls of humanity. But there is an, another internal enemy, and that is ourselves. Our fleshly desires, which come from hearts that are wicked and spiritually dead, In other words, we are complicit in our own destruction. We are not just floating downstream as victims of circumstance, victims of some external force. The sad thing of it all is we are blindly swimming, apart from Christ, we are blindly swimming toward our own destruction. And we have the nerve to call it freedom we're blindly swimming towards our own destruction, and we call it a choice. We're blindly swimming towards our own destruction. And the saddest part of it all is we take pleasure in it. That's what the text says. We are rebels living among rebels. And although our brand of desire may be different than, the, than our neighbors, we're not better than they are, as if God would somehow judge us based on each other. Our existence apart from Christ consists of living in our own desires so that we can fulfill those desires, whether they're physical or mental. But for some people, those desires may actually look acceptable. They may look moral. They may may even look religious. But I'm here to tell you that the leaky raft of self-righteousness will not save you. Your good works will only deceive you into thinking that you're somehow safe from the destruction that is ahead. And you most certainly are not. Apart from Christ, our unworthy vessel, our works will surely capsize and leave us just as drowned and just as dead as a serial killer or whoever you want to put on that list of the the most evil people in the world. We all have one. We all put people on that list and say, oh, certainly they're wrong. But the text puts us all on that same list and says we are all headed for destruction. And we we have no means within ourselves to save ourselves. Apart from Christ, we are all the children of wrath. We are all due to face the wrath of God. By our very nature, we are. We're just as the others. We're not any better than than them. We're the exact same as them. We're all apart from Christ. We are dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Paul is is pointing out in the text. We live and we act and we behave according to our identity and nature. That that, that is true of all of us. We do who we are. We act according to who we, we are. And apart from Christ, we are separated from God. And living in open rebellion against him. And destined to face his righteous wrath at the end. I'll paraphrase Harold Honer here. He says that apart from Christ, we do three things. Number one, we do what everyone else does. Number two, we do what the devil wants. And number three, we enjoy it because it pleases our flesh and thoughts. All of us are born into this raging river. Every one of us. There's no human means of escape. It flows uncontrollably and dumps out in a place of eternal torment and separation from God that we call hell. That's where it's heading. And apart from Christ, all of us will end up there. I don't say that glibly this morning. But I would say that by now our canvas is sufficiently dark. I would say that by now There ought to be a weight placed upon each one of us this morning. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're in despair at this point because you're realizing that this is referring to you. Maybe for the first time ever, you're realizing that. But the question is, is there any hope? Who or what can save us from ourselves and from our sin? How in the world can a dead man come to life? Fortunately, there is a ray of hope. Fortunately, there is a light in the darkness. Fortunately, God has commanded that this light shine out in the darkness to give us the light, of the, glory, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4. There is hope this morning, and let's look at that hope. That's point two. We see that, but God lovingly raises us to new life through the gracious work of God. ...of Jesus Christ. This is verses 4 through 9. Follow back in your text with me. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us... ...even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace... ...in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus... For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So th- through verses 1 through 3, we have learned that fallen humanity should expect nothing but the wrath of God. And that's why verses 4 and following is so unexpectedly glorious and wonderful. It begins with a, th- a little three-letter word. It's-, it's only two in the Greek but it completely changes the complexion of the painting that that, that Paul is is giving to the Ephesians here. That three-letter word, but, B-U-T. It stands in contrast to all that has come before it. And it says, verses 1 through 3 are absolutely true. However, God has the final say. Notice how verses one, one through three were all about our past identity, apart from Christ. But, but if you notice in this section, verses four through four and following, these verses are all about God. They're all about His action, what He is doing. They're all about His constant character and identity. God is the subject. God is the one doing all the action, in verses four through nine. We are the objects being acted upon by God and why why is that why is God the one doing all the action it's because we were dead we were dead in trespasses and sins we couldn't do any of this death is absolutely final unless God intervenes apart from the work of God in Christ we are helpless and hopeless we are dead case closed close the book we bring nothing to the table except the sin That makes Christ's atoning sacrifice necessary. That is the only thing we bring to the table. We we, we bring nothing of our own to the table. And that's why you see everything that is from verse 4 and following is all a work of God. God has every right to unleash holy wrath against us as fallen humanity. But, but, but he's rich in mercy. Do you see that in the text there? Do you see what Paul is trying to tell us there? Verses 1 through 3 are absolutely true. But God is rich in mercy. What a glorious, glorious thought this morning. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins and fallen nature, but he deals with us according to his mercy and grace, his loving character. How do we know that God is rich in mercy? The text tells us we know he is because of his great love with which he loved us. And how great is that love? How do do, do we know how great that is? He loved us so much that even while we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were completely unlovable, God loved us and made us alive together with Christ. Notice, though, we need to notice, though, what the text doesn't say. The text does not say that God waited for us to clean up our lives, to reform ourselves, to turn over a new leaf before he would love us. The text says, even while we were dead in sins, God loved us. What great love. Can you even imagine it this morning? If it was true that, that the text said that, that God waited till we cleaned up our act... God would never have loved a one of us because we are dead apart from Christ. Dead men can do none of those things. Dead men cannot turn over a new leaf. Dead men cannot reform. Dead men cannot bring life to themselves. But we do need to answer a question this morning that isn't explicitly stated in the text. Because what happened to God's wrath? What happened between verses 3 and verses 4? What did God do with that wrath? How how did God justly deal with his wrath against our sin? And might I add, his rightful wrath against our sin. Did he simply sweep it under the rug and just say, I'll I'll, I'll forget it, I'll I'll overlook it? No, because then he wouldn't be just, just right. God dealt with it by sending his son Jesus Christ to the earth in flesh. To willingly die in our place on the cross. On the cross, Christ became the lightning rod for God's wrath from heaven. And he he drank that full cup in our place for us. This one act forever proves that God loves us. How do we know that God loves us? Well, Christ proved it by taking on that flesh. By bearing the wrath of God that that we deserve. He did not. He willingly died in our place. That's amazing grace this morning. That's amazing grace. And then notice that Paul closes with this joyful outburst of that grace. He says, at the end of verse 5, he says, by grace you're saved. This reminds all of us that that salvation is by the uh, the gracious hand of God. It is by all by his un. Uh, uh, all by his unmerited favor but but I want you to see here in the in the text that being saved is so much more than just being bailed out of this raging river bailed out of destruction being spared from God's wrath although that would be glorious enough on its own don't get me wrong but Paul tells us what else it means to be saved here in uh, verses five and six There are three main verbs, and they all go back to the subject, which is God, back at verse 4. To be saved are these three things. Number one is to be made alive together with Christ. We see that there in in, in verse 5. This speaks to a, a regeneration, a new birth. We are brought from spiritual life to, excuse me, from spiritual death to new life. And united in Christ and with Christ. We sing that song sometimes here who has the power to raise the dead. Who can save us from our sins? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus, only Jesus. To be saved is to be made alive, to be brought from spiritual death to new life, in Christ, with Christ. Second thing, we we see also that not only are we made alive, but we're raised up together. And this is a natural progression. Just as Christ was resurrected physically, from the grave, we who have been made alive with Christ are raised spiritually to new life, and that new life entails new desires. Paul would say this in Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. We have a new life, we are raised with Christ, and we have new things to seek after, and that's those things which are above New life, new values. We are raised up together. And and we're also, and this is the one that is the most astounding, is that we are made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, as you see there in verse 6. This phrase speaks to what we might call positional righteousness. Because we're now in Christ Jesus, he is our head, he is our representative. He died in our place on the cross was resurrected from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And he is now ascended to heaven where he sits reserving our place for us. Albert Barnes said this, his entrance there, speaking of heaven, is a pledge that we shall also enter there. And in Christ, our future is secure so we can rest in this blessed hope. We can live in, in, in anticipation that where Christ is, we will also be both now and in eternity. But I don't want us to miss a little two-letter pronoun in all three of these phrases. And that's that pronoun, us. You see it there in, in all three of those. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together. He made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, when we are saved, we are not only united to Christ but we're also united to his church. Yes, we're saved individually, but we are saved into his body, the church. And, and this is a great thing, because not only does God reconcile us to himself, he reconciles us to one another. We, all we have to do is turn on the news and see how unreconciled the world is to each other, right? But in Christ, he, he takes... He takes former enemies and he brings them together as one into something that is beautiful and something that is a testimony of the grace and the majesty of God. You see, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The artificial distinctions and synthetic walls we put up to separate ourselves from one another, they're all broken down in in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. And finally, verse 7, it introduces us to this purpose clause. It gives us the why. And and, and the why here is, what is God's purpose? Verse 7 tells us, why would God do this? What is his purpose in all this? And we see that. We see that in verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What's God's purpose? For what reason did God lavish his gracious love upon us? For what reason did he make us alive and raise us up together, and seat us in the heavenly places, so that we might show the exceeding riches of his grace toward us through Christ throughout the ages to come. Like everything, salvation is all about God's glory. It's all about him. He displays his glory by saving those who cannot possibly save themselves, can do nothing, have nothing to bring to the table, who are still dead in trespasses and sins until he saves them. He does it for his glory, which is for the best because the whole of creation is to exist to glorify God. And we've fallen from that. And, and, and we see here that the phrase, uh, the, we see this phrase in the ages to come. What does that refer to? Well, that gives the, the time frame that God is going to display His glory. Most likely this is referring from the church age, which is present. It will extend through the end of the age through to Christ's second coming and will extend on out into eternity. And I want you to see this morning that forevermore, for all eternity, Christ's bride, the church, will be a dazzling display of God's grace to the entire universe forever and ever and ever. And Paul is going to expound upon that grace, the riches of God's grace, in verses 8 and 9. And what he's going to do with that is he's going to declare to us definitively, salvation is all by God's grace. It is not through your works. There's nothing you can do. It is by God's grace we are saved. In other words, God's grace is the means. It is the cause. It is the instrument of our salvation. It happens through faith. Faith is the receiving of the gift Trusting what God accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross, it is through that faith we receive God's gift of grace. So the only one praiseworthy is God who is giving the gift, not us who are receiving the gift. He's the praiseworthy one. There's not, nothing, there's not anything really especially meritorious about receiving a gift. If, if, if I had cash in my wallet right now, and if I were to take out some of that cash... And I were were to hand to you publicly and and hand you this and you receive the gift, people wouldn't say, wow, look look how well they received that cash. Look how well they received that money. The focus would be upon the one who gave the gift, not the one who received the gift. Because that's the way it is in salvation. The focus is to be on God who gives. We simply receive by faith. The, The English theologian Richard Hooker says this, God just justifies the believing man not for the worthiness of his belief, but for the worthiness of him, that's Christ, in whom he believes. And Paul clarifies that by, say, by stating it. This is not of yourselves. In case you didn't know by now, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of your works unless anyone should boast. And in the text, the word that gets emphasized in, in, in this phrase is God. It's God's gift as opposed to yourselves or your work. It's God's gift, not our merit that that brings salvation. And then he closes this summary of salvation with another purpose clause. So that or lest anyone should boast. So that no one should boast. We shouldn't boast in ourselves or trust in ourselves as a source of salvation because it, it is God's gift. So clearly, as we see in the text here today, there is no grounds for self-achievement. There are no grounds for any sort of self-effort. Boasting is completely thrown out of the window. God is the principal actor of salvation. God is the one who saves. So if you are here this morning and you're depending on being a good and moral person, you're depending on being a church member, or you're depending on the fact that, you know, I was baptized once upon a time, or... You're depending on the fact that, you know, I I give to the church or I I give to charitable organizations or I'm a good citizen. If you're depending on any of those things, you're sadly mistaken this morning. Salvation doesn't come through any of those things. I want to challenge you this morning that if your salvation testimony begins with something like, because I do this or I did that or I prayed the prayer once upon a time, you had better examine yourself this morning. I urge you this morning because salvation is a work of God. It is not of us. And if we think it is of us, we're still dead in trespasses and sins. I don't know how to say it any more plainly than that. You see, we don't need a little Jesus sprinkled on top of our decent moral life in order to get us over the top. We're we're all dead in trespasses and sins and we need all of Jesus. We bring nothing to the table. There's nothing worthy in any of us. We need all of Jesus to save us out of our bondage, to sin and self, to raise us up to new life because we're dead apart from him. We have no hope apart from him. We bring nothing to the table. As we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. He's the one who did it. Jesus Christ is the supremely worthy one. All we can do is receive that by faith. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning and is drawing you, I pray that you would receive that this morning. That you would reject human works. That you would reject self-effort. That you would reject the idea that, that, that you're a good enough person to measure up. And that you would see yourself as hopeless and helpless and see Jesus as glorious and gracious and willing to save you this morning. And finally, let's look at, a, at the, the, the third point, And that's this. United in Christ... We are designed to live in good works that glorify God. So verse 10 begins with the word for, which is going to link up with verses 8 and 9. It's going to elaborate on those truths. The, the idea in particular that it's, it's going to expound upon is this idea that salvation is not of our works. So another way to understand this is, uh, would, would be this. Salvation is not of our works for, or the truth is, in Christ we are God's work. That's that's what the text is saying. And and in fact, the pronoun his is emphasized in the text there as as we read that. For we are his workmanship. Salvation is not our work. We are his work, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So Paul declares that we are God's workmanship. We, plural, are God's workmanship, singular, singular. Which, says, which is speaking once again to the unity of the church. We are one in Christ. There's one church. And, and this word workmanship is interesting because it's only used one other time in the whole New Testament, this noun that's, that, that we see in the text. And the only other place it's used is Romans 1.20. In Romans 1.20, Paul says this, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by... What the things that are made that that phrase the things that are that are made that's the same word as workmanship, used here in in Ephesians two ten. In in that in the passage in Romans, Paul is stating that the physical the physical creation is pointing back to God. It gives glory to to the Creator as a physical witness to all humanity, and therefore all humanity. is, is, needs to see and, is, and can be made aware that, that there is a God that exists because the physical creation declares that he does. And, and so uh, the text in Romans says that, that, that human beings, we, we willfully suppress that, that knowledge. We push it down. We, we don't, we don't want to consider it. We reject it even though it's there to declare that there is a creator. And I think that that verse gives us insight into what it means for us to be the workmanship of of God. That us, the redeemed church in Christ, are God's workmanship. I think it's saying that we are the new creation. We are God's masterwork. We are skillfully crafted by God to declare his graciousness to the entire world. We are to be living testimonies to the goodness and the mercy of God. Because good craftsmanship declares that there is a good craftsman. And that's what Paul Paul further explains here. He says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the use of the word for there. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. As a result of being saved, not not as a requisite for being saved. And a couple of points here that, that I don't want us to miss the word for created used in this passage, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's only used for an act of God. This is something only God can do. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is something only God can do. That's what the text is screaming to us. This is not something we can do. This is not something we can put on. This is only a work of God in us. Once again, as I said, being raised, salvation, this idea of being raised from spiritual death to new new life, is only an act that God can perform. It's all of him. And secondly, we have to ask, what is the purpose of good works? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify God, yes. Our good works are to live and to act and to relate to others in such a way that God is glorified in the world around us. That the light of the gospel shine through us and illuminate the darkness that's there. And notice also, these works are not accidental. They don't, they're not by happenstance. They're not produced through human effort. God himself has sovereignly ordained and prepared these works in advance for us to do. To live in. And But for what reason? That leads us to a final purpose clause. There in verse 10. That, you see that word, that. Why, why, what, what's the purpose of these good works? Why are we God's workmanship? That we should walk in them. There's that word walk again that we, we, we saw at the beginning. Remember, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, we walked in those sins according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the children of disobedience. That was the former identity we walked according to the sin, our sins and trespasses. Now, as God's new creation, his masterwork, we walk in a new identity. We walk in the good works that God has prepared for us that display God's grace to a lost and dying world. Because that is our new identity. And as I said, we do who we are. We, we do what is our nature. In Christ, we are a new creation with new works. This is not a put-on, this is not self-effort. We do good good works because we are God's good work. In Christ, we are graciously empowered by the Spirit to do these new works. And these works are designed to bring glory back to God. And so we see verse 10 links up with verse 7. The reason that God would save us for his glory, the, the, the reason that he saves us for his glory the reason for our new life in Christ, for his glory, it's all for his glory, church. But the question this morning is, are you his new work? Are you God's good work, or are you still dead in in sins and trespasses? I just want to say this as clearly as I can this morning. There is no way to escape the coming destruction except through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Will you see yourself this morning as hopeless and helpless apart from Christ? And will will you by faith receive Jesus as your only hope for salvation? If the Spirit's drawing you this morning, I I plead with you, do not resist. Christ is offering you new life, new hope, a new family, a new future in exchange for your grave clothes, in exchange for your sin. Will you receive that by faith this morning? Some some practical applications as we do close. The first one is this. If you're here apart from Christ, repent. Receive God's gracious gift of salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can only trust what Christ did on our behalf. He came to earth. He lived a perfect sinless life that we could not and we would not live. And then he died on the cross bearing our sins on his self. All we can do is trust the perfect work of God this morning. Will you? Will you? though secondly believer live in your new identity in Christ I I know as I look around this room and I know so many of you and and I know that uh, many of you have a credible testimony of, of being a believer and I rejoice in that but believer do not forget where God brought you out of don't forget the depths of your sin because if you do you, you you will miss out on the gloriousness of god's grace you you, you won't see it for what it is you, you'll 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 begin to have this mistaken idea that somehow i have always just been a good person you know and, and and then you'll begin to look at others who don't have hope in Jesus Christ, and instead of having compassion, instead of being broken over them, you'll say, "Well, why can't they do what I did? Believer, don't forget." What depths of depravity that God has graciously raised you out of, he's saved you out of. Remember who you once were to have a greater appreciation for God's grace. Live in that grace according to the new creation that God has made you to be. And then finally, <clears throat> believer, display God's grace by your new life and new works. In Christ, we are called, we are designed, and we are equipped for good works. Works that glorify God. Through our actions, our words, our attitudes. Who around you is still dead in trespasses and sins and needs to see the light of the the gospel of, of, of grace? Who around you needs to see that this morning? Will you be that? Will you live in those new works around them so that they will see your loving Heavenly Father and say, Save me, Father. Will you do that this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed. If we come to our time of invitation, God's grace is glorious. It is wonderful. It is far more wonderful than I could ever tell you. And where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. I realize that that for the, the first part of this message, it was, a, it was a heavy concept. We're dealing with matters of eternity. These are not things we say lightly. These are truths that we must all face because they are the truths of existence. Apart from Christ, we will be eternally separated in a place of torment. But Christ, what Christ offers is so much better than the life that we, that we are choosing apart from him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time of invitation. Father, speak to us. Dear God, Father, I, I pray for uh, just a, a spirit of freedom from your Holy Spirit. Dear God, if, if there are those here who, who, are, who are not saved, who are still dead in trespasses and sins, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict them as only you can and would draw them to yourself as only you can, and would save them for yourself as only you can. Father, I also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today that we do not forget the depths of depravity with which we've been saved out of, but that we would live not in a burden of guilt, but in 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 the freedom of grace in these new works, to declare your love and your grace to a world that desperately needs it, that's longing for it but doesn't know it. Father, help us this morning to be your church. And we'll we'll give you the glory for everything that is said and done in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand to our feet, if you need to come pray at the altar, feel free to do so.